The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. The Cult of Victimization, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 71. The Romantic movement marked a major change in the world's history and fathered many revolutions. Not only was it a major intellectual force, but it was at the same time a powerful popular movement, affecting all classes. Christianity had earlier been unique in being so great a popular movement and one which reached into all segments of society. Centuries later, the witchcraft cults represented also a great popular movement, and an evil one. Although the Enlightenment was an anti-popular movement marked by contempt for the common man and a depreciation of women, it set the stage for Romanticism. By making nature a substitute for God, the Enlightenment paved the way for the Romantic exaltation of the state of nature. It was Jean-Jacques Rousseau who brought together the various ingredients to unleash the Romantic movement. First of all, there was the idealization of nature as the state of innocence and the denigration of civilization as the fall of man. Karl Marx, as a Romantic, simply substituted capitalism for civilization. Instead of being conformed to and remade by God, man to be saved now simply had to be himself. The, quote, noble savage, unquote, and, quote, the simple peasant, unquote, gained status as the true people. Marx converted this into the worker class as the bearers of true humanity, needing freedom. 
Second, because man's salvation now was no longer a second birth in Christ, but to recapture the, quote, innocence, unquote, of his first birth. Egoism was exalted, and the self-centered, quote, hero, unquote, became an idol. Byron's poems exalt such men repeatedly. Romantic love has been defined as, quote, the dream of a universe peopled by two alone where they in time stood still, unquote. Love and marriage previously had been a relationship, not only between two persons, but between two families, and it was based on a unity of faith in life. Now it became a possession, and false toad Mephistopheles, quote, get me the girl, unquote. With every man as his own god and idol, the purpose of sex was possession, exploitation, and abandonment. The romantic poet Shelley saw every girl he desired to possess as a goddess. Afterwards, if she wanted an ongoing relationship, she became a witch. Third, because time passes, the romantics, as would-be gods, mourn mutability, change, a constant theme in their writings, and sadness became the romantic posture. All happiness was lined with sadness because nothing stays the same. The romantics felt perpetually thwarted. They were the innocent victims of God and time, and they hated both. As a result, people believed at times more in dying for love than living for love, because life is only frustration to the passionate ego. The same is true of love. Consummated love for the romantic begins to perish. The romantics took a perverse pleasure in frustration. It vindicated their view of life. Fourth, reason and logic were downgraded and even despised by some in favor of passion and feeling. William Blake expressed such sentiments most plainly. As a result, sentimentality, which had emerged earlier as a reaction against the Enlightenment, began to predominate in literature. The earlier sentimentality was still tied to moral concerns, but increasingly the focus was feeling. People became sensitive to their every emotion and feeling, and Western man became introspective on a pathological scale. Novelists devoted books to exploiting the sensitive souls of romantic persons, and the essence of the modern novel, film, and television story is not an intelligent content or point, but the exploitation of feelings for their own sake. Fifth, since Romanticism stressed the ego of individual man, it stressed his remarkable and, quote, divine, unquote, uniqueness. At the same time, it stressed the uniqueness in various nationalities, their origins and folklore, and nationalism became a governing force in European life and thought. It was, moreover, a nationalism which displaced Christianity as the focal point of life. Just as for the romantic hero, the good of the individual is paramount and takes precedence over all other considerations. So for the nation, in the romantic faith, the good or concern of the nation is the highest good and takes precedence over Christian concerns. National self-interest went hand in hand with a belief in national superiority and self-glorification. Every nation and would-be nation saw in itself a manifest destiny in humanistic terms. In earlier eras, 
Men felt loyal to a lord or a king, not to the nation as such. Now allegiance was to a nation-state, and many minorities began to agitate for what came to be seen as the only true freedom, a nation-state. Napoleon was himself a figure of the Romantic faith, but in establishing a European empire, he ran counter to the stirrings of nationalism and created a full-blown nationalistic fervor in one area after another. This same impulse for, quote, national freedom, unquote, which is not the same as a free society, has led to the post-colonial states of Africa and Asia and their tyrannies. In India, national freedom has led to tyrannies and mass killings, undreamed of in Mughal and British eras. Thus, while Romanticism stressed at the beginning, the individual, it came in time to stress the freedom of the national state, or the worker state, or a racial state, at the cost of personal freedom. Sixth, at the same time, the Romantic movement, by requiring impossible and egocentric hopes of men and nations, cultivated an ugly response in men, sadomasochism. Mario Pratt's and other scholars of the Romantic temper have documented this tradition in literature in the 19th century. History has given us the documentation in life in the 20th century. Its governing impulse is the sense of victimization. Communist revolutions are made possible by creating a sense of being victimized in the people. The result is the sadistic revolutionary destructiveness and then the even more vicious suppression of the people in the name of the revolution and a masochistic acceptance. Hitler's National Socialism began with an appeal to the sense of victimization. The world powers, it was held, had cruelly victimized Germany, but in their own midst, the Jews had been the conniving agents of that victimization. As a result, the Jews had to be punished. When it was over, the Germans were also victims. The people of the Austro-Hungarian Empire saw themselves as victimized. They have now a much more thorough oppression than they had ever remotely experienced. With more and more peoples, victimization became their version of their past. Ireland was certainly long brutally oppressed by the English, but at the same time it manifested a resistance, a verve, and an inner spirit of remarkable character. With Romanticism, only the bleak aspects of its past became important. The Jews in Europe were certainly oppressed at times, but they were also vigorous in their development and power during long eras. With Romanticism, the Jewish self-image began to shift from the chosen people to the victim people. And even in America, with freedom and prosperity, this self-concept remains with more than a few. Similarly, the Armenians, with a remarkable history, and with cities which remained free to World War I, forgot their many triumphs to think instead of their defeats and massacres, real enough, but not their total history. But this is not all. Amazingly, powerful nations like the United States, Britain, France, and Japan are not lacking in numbers of peoples who are sure that their country has been exploited and abused by other nations. Before long, at this rate, the school bully will be going to the counselor to cry about being victimized. All over the world, men and nations wallow in self-pity 
and a belief that they have been victimized. The cult of victimization is perhaps the most popular religion of our time. Shortly after World War II, some psychiatrists, notably Dr. Bergler, commented on the growing trend on the part of many people to find a perverse pleasure in defeat. The world is then seen as too coarse and evil to tolerate the sensitive and pure soul, and defeat becomes a vindication of one's nobility and purity. Criminals are prone to the same perspective. They see themselves often as the victims of society. Anyone who has done even a little work with prisoners soon finds that this self-pity and sense of victimization is very prevalent. One police officer with some experience with vice squad said that he found prostitutes and homosexuals uniformly, quote, rotten, unquote, and full of self-pity and a sense of victimization to the core of their being. Worst of all, too many churchmen seem to believe and teach that victimization is a proof of holiness. One could say that for them, the more one is willingly victimized, the holier one becomes. I have regularly encountered persons who, while undergoing hellish abuse, found many who seemed to manifest loving concern and friendship. When, however, they took successful steps to deliver themselves from evil, these, quote, Christian, unquote, friends turned on them. Several times lately, I've heard from people who have been told to surrender to repulsive evils because they will then be suffering for Christ's sake. This is not Christianity. It is the cult of self-victimization and masochism. It produces an entirely bogus religiosity. Such a bogus religiosity cannot produce a free people. The world has been moving into slavery because people refuse to recognize that the biblical word salvation means deliverance, health, and victory. The party of defeat is the devil's party. The devil is the one who sees himself eternally as the victim of God's arbitrary ways. In the temptation of our Lord, the three alternatives offered by Satan all presuppose man as God's victim. If you are truly a son of God, says Satan, how can you let people go hungry? By a miracle, turning stones into bread, solve the economic problem and make work unnecessary. Again, says Satan, walking by faith is painful and difficult for man. Use the angels to perform a mighty public miracle so that men may walk by sight, not by faith. Finally, Satan says, worship me, not God. Recognize that I am right in saying that God's plan makes man a victim and that man is not a sinner but a victim of God's harsh ways. Our Lord does not argue. He simply says, it is written. God has spoken and his truth prevails. It is reality, not man's self-pity. The cult of victimization and its sense of self-pity has its immediate roots in Romanticism. Its ultimate origin is the satanic insistence on the will of the creature rather than the creator. With this began man's fall, and with it continues man's misery. Salvation is Christ, resurrection, deliverance, health, and victory. February 1986 the Doctrine of Debt, Chalcedon Position Paper Number 72.
The doctrine of debt is an important and neglected emphasis of Scripture. The Lord God, having created us and redeemed us, we are totally His creation and possession and absolutely in debt to Him. We are therefore not our own, but the Lord's. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 We cannot legitimately treat ourselves nor our possessions as our own. As Paul tells us, quote, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 Our Lord makes clear that we can never put God in our debt. Quote, so likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do, unquote. Luke 17.10 Because we are God's property and in debt to him for everything, God's law does not allow us to incur long-term debt to men. The seventh year must be a sabbatical from debt, among other things, Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 6, because debt is a form of slavery, Proverbs 22, 7. And we are called to be free men in Christ, John 8, 36. While short-term debt, six years, is permitted as a need at times, the normal premise is to, quote, owe no man anything, but to love one another, unquote, Romans 13, 8. If man obeyed the biblical laws on debt, there would be no inflationary society. Debt makes men past-oriented in their work, and that a sizable portion of their income ties them to debt, past spending, decisions, or commitments. Debt-free men can command the present and the future. The economic ramifications alone of God's law concerning debt, money, interest, and other economic concerns, if applied, would give us an inflation-free and prosperous society, which is the intention of God's law. We can see all around us the economic chaos created by humanistic law. With John Law, 1671 to 1729, the monetary policies of nations began to change. What had previously been practiced as a form of theft now became, quote, good, unquote, monetary policy. The repeated failures of paper money since Law's day have not changed men's minds because Law's economics give men the opportunity to play God and to create monetary values on their fiat word. The hope of these humanists is that eventually, given enough power, they will make it work. As a result, what now stands behind paper currencies is debt, not wealth in the form of gold or silver. In the lives of the people also, debt has become a form of pseudo-wealth, and true wealth is confiscated by status controls and policies. In another and very much neglected area, a major change in the doctrine of wealth came into focus in the 19th century. The name Peter Lavrov, 1823-1900, is little known today. He was in his time a major force in Russian thought and abroad. He was a friend of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. While not in full agreement with them, and his ideas on a revolutionary party formation had a decisive influence on Lenin. The Russian Revolution owed more than a little to Lavrov. Our concern with Lavrov is in a related area, the concept of debt. 
In his very influential historical letters, 1840, also the year of Lenin's birth, Lavrov wrote with a strong moral burden. The privileged minority he held owes a debt to, quote, the people, unquote. The privileged classes owe their advantages to the exploitation of the poor. Like all socialists, Lavrov could not see wealth and technology as something created by the intelligence, character, foresight, thrift, and industry of some men, but rather purely as exploitation and expropriation. This perspective of Lavrov's historical letters now governs the world, is taught in our schools and universities, and governs the nations. Given this, quote, debt to the people, unquote, it followed for Lavrov and his successors that this debt must be repaid. A debt, it was held, ought to be repaid. As a result, while sociologists generally deny any moral absolutes, at this one point there are absolutists, quote, the debt to the people, unquote, must be repaid. It is in fact an article of faith from Lavrov to the present that, quote, historical necessity, unquote, will affect the payment. A form of economic and social predestination mandates the repayment of the debt to the people. The earlier Russian populace favored a romantic view of the people. The peasants and workers were the innocent peoples, the good ones, and the rich were bad. Later, the peasants and workers were seen as exploited fools whom the elite revolutionary cadres had to control for their own good. No change took place in the view of the capitalist. They were, by definition, evil. The influence of Lavrov's historical letters were dramatic and far-reaching. A. O. Lukasvich said its influence in 1871 to 1872, quote, The latter book, which quickly became a special sort of gospel among the young people, placed before us very vividly the thesis, which stirred us profoundly, of the irredeemable debt to the people owed by the Russian intelligentsia, unquote. Peter Lavrov, Historical Letters, page 49, 1967 edition. Lavrov's thinking spread across the world as a new gospel of debt and salvation. It went hand in hand with humanism. Lavrov, in his, quote, first letter, unquote, held with Hegel that man was now taking a great step forward. Quote, man again became the center of the entire world, unquote. Given the tremendous inequity of society and the need to repay, quote, the debt to the people, unquote, Lavrov wrote in favor of terrorism. The use of violence to destroy evil would hasten the triumph of good. The terrorists of our day have not heard of Lavrov, but they are his heirs and successors. They unite with their atheism and moral relativism this one great moral demand. The debt to the people must be repaid, and terrorism is justified as a means of righting ancient wrongs. The politics of the world is now the politics and morality of Lavrov. The Marxist states apply Lavrov's doctrine of the debt to the people logically and systematically. The democracies agree with Lavrov, but are slower in paying the debt, and hence they are morally weaker versions of the Marxist states. American foreign policy since World War II is infected with Lavrovian thinking. 
Throwing money at poorer nations is viewed as a moral necessity and a debt to be paid for being a successful nation. The intelligentsia, the press, the media, and the women's clubs for the elite treat even modest cuts in foreign aid as moral offense and as proof of evil in those who propose them. If Congress were true to its convictions, it would order a statue of Lavrov to be placed in the halls of Congress. The churches, too, have adopted this doctrine of a debt to the people. The Bible tells us that we are totally in debt to the Lord God, that we owe him as our Lord the tithe as a minimum and our lives as a living sacrifice. The new doctrine of debt turns the moral universe upside down. The poor replace God as the focus of moral concern. Now, the Bible requires that we care for the poor, for widows and orphans, the alien and all in need. This concern is mandated for the Lord's sake, not for the poor. It is obedience to God, our debt to the Lord, not a debt to the people which must govern us. It is therefore God who judges us, not the poor, nor the elite revolutionaries. Because of this shift in the doctrine of debt from God to man, there is also a shift in the nature and necessity of judgment. In Scripture, God settles all accounts, rights, all wrongs, and repays all debts on Judgment Day. The books are then opened and there is a final and full accounting. History ends in total justice and a new heaven and earth begin. Humanistic socialist faith also has its doctrine of judgment and of the repayment of all debts. Its name is the revolution. The revolution in every country is a bloody affair in that sharp and savage judgment is meted out to all the, quote, privileged, unquote, classes. No punishment or torture is too much for them. Quote, the moral debt to the people, unquote, requires the obliteration of all its, quote, enemies, unquote, and it is the revolutionaries who decide who the enemies are. If you deny this doctrine of a, quote, moral debt to the people, unquote, then you are the enemy, whether you are rich or poor. If you feel that your work entitles you to what you yourself grow, to sell or to use, then you are an enemy. The peasants of Russia, the, quote, kulaks, unquote, of the Ukraine, and others were poor people. But by retaining a biblical perspective on work and debt, they became enemies and were murdered by the millions. What about Lavrov? The academicians alone remember him. They disagree as fellow intellectuals with him on various points, but he is treated with respect as a fellow member of the great fraternity of anti-Christian thinkers who plan a brave new world. All over the world today, people are brutally oppressed and murdered in the name of paying a moral debt to the people. This evil doctrine of debt is one of the governing moral truisms of the 20th century. It no longer belongs to one man, Lavrov. It has become the common property of journalists, teachers, preachers, professors, legislators, the media men, and of children. It is a part of the humanistic plan of salvation. But God is not mocked. We either live by God's law or we die by it. In the long run, it is death for all, and the world is marching towards a self-inflicted judgment. Knowing about this evil doctrine is necessary 
but it is not enough. We must know God's doctrine. Our debt of judgment and death is paid to God the Father by Jesus Christ in His atonement. Our debt of service must be paid all our life. Because we are now alive in Christ, we must follow the way of life, His law, and we must see ourselves as saved to serve, to love, and to obey Him. Quote, What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Unquote. Psalms 116, 12 through 14, March 1986. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, May God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his pain.